You know, there was a, uh, a few years ago, my wife and I were looking for a place for lunch. It was like a Wednesday afternoon, just like a normal Wednesday afternoon. We were uh, living in Long Beach at the time, and so we went over by the Lakewood Mall. We, were look- we had a couple of regular spots we normally go to, but they were all kind of crowded, and so uh, we noticed sitting there, we hadn't really paid much attention to it, we noticed sitting there, there was a red lobster. You guys remember, the- you guys remember restaurants? Back in the olden days when we used to have restaurants, there was a restaurant called Red Lobster, and uh, we hadn't been to, re- I hadn't been to Red Lobster since I was like a kid, so we, we decided, well, there- you know, well, let's just go to Red Lobster. So we walk in, there's nobody in that place. Like a Wednesday afternoon at lunchtime, it's like nobody's there. Uh, in fact, the hostess at the counter when we walk in seemed kind of surprised that we'd come in. And uh, my wife and I walk in and she immediately, she looks at us and she goes, uh, welcome to Red Lobster. It was clearly a rehearsed line. Welcome to Red Lobster. What are you celebrating today? And I remember just thinking like, you know you work at a Red Lobster, right? Like we're not I don't, I mean, I guess we're celebrating that Chipotle has a long line, and so we came over here to get some fried shrimp. I don't know. We weren't celebrating anything, but there was this perception in the hostess's mind of like, man, if you're at Red Lobster for lunch on a Wednesday, it's got to be a party. You know what I'm saying? Like, something great is going on in your life. And I get that they were trying to position themselves to sort of be like a place to go for a celebration, but we were just looking for lunch. There wasn't really anything to celebrate, or at least nothing that, that we would certainly think about Red Lobster as a place to do that celebration. I think, by the way, that Red Lobster may be closed now. Sorry, Red Lobster. But uh, it might be because people didn't have enough to celebrate. I don't know. As we move on into Ephesians chapter 1, remember if you were with us last week, we studied the first half of Ephesians chapter 1. We talked about some big overarching things, uh, primarily last week, that Paul, the writer of this book, is trying to give us a sense of awe. Awe in the grace and peace of God. Awe in the unity that he creates. Awe in who God is. He's trying to stir us in the first half of the book to motivate us to action. He's trying to stir in us a sense of awe and gratitude and humility that will provoke in us action which he'll lay out in the last half of the book. As we come to the last section of chapter one or the last half of it, he moves from this, uh, this sort of all-encompassing praise and awe, he moves from this lofty praise into a sense of, of prayer, like contemplative, contemplative prayer. And, and this is one of two prayers he prays in this book. And the idea of this prayer is to stir up remembrance or to stir up a deeper knowledge. Look, look, look at the first couple of verses we're studying this morning. Ephesians 1, look at verses 15 through 17. It says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I did not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He says, I've heard some great things about you. I've heard about the way that you love Christ, and I've heard about the way that you love one another. And every time I pray, I don't forget, he says, to pray for you. I remember you in my prayers. Verse 17, he tells us what he's praying. That's essentially what we're looking at this morning. He says, I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I love the Trinitarian thought here. He's saying, I'm praying that the Father of our Savior Jesus Christ will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, right? That's the Holy Spirit giving increased wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He says, I'm praying for you that your knowledge of him will grow. Now, right out of the gate, we need to make it clear that the word here that's used for knowledge is not just an understanding of more sort of intellectual facts. I think sometimes when we talk about knowing something, uh, you might know math, or you might know science, or you might know details and data and figures. That's not what this idea of knowledge means. The idea of knowledge here is more of a, of a 
intimate relational understanding, right? I, uh, I went to Bible college and I studied all kinds of things in the scripture that have to do with uh, all these locations in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But it wasn't until I went to Israel that I began to really know what it's like in that location, right? In the Holy Land. You don't really know it by studying facts and figures. You can study computer science, but if you haven't actually worked on a computer, you don't necessarily know. You see, the difference between an intellectual understanding and an sort of intimate relational knowledge. He says, sir, I remember to pray for you regularly that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will increase your wisdom, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. You have this intimate knowledge of Christ. I'm praying that it will grow, that it will deepen, that it will become wider, right? And this is what he says in verse 18. He says, this is how it's gonna happen. He says, it happens, you, you will grow to know him in a more intimate and personal way, in a deeper way. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, for the, for the Hebrew people, the heart wasn't just the organ that's pumping blood in the middle of your chest. The heart was the center of the will. It was the center of the personality. It was the center of personhood. So what he's saying here is, I want to have the eyes of your whole person increasingly opened to a couple of things. And now, in verse 18, he's going to tell us three main things that he wants to have in the spirit of wisdom and revelation, in the knowledge, that sort of intimate relational knowledge of Christ. He wants to have the eyes of our being opened to. Three key things. And for what it's worth, it's a great Easter text this morning because the three things that he wants to have the eyes of our heart open to are the very things we're celebrating on a Sunday like Easter. He says this, he gives, he gives us these three. He says, I remember to pray for you, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and here are the three things that he's praying we will understand, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Three main things that he's praying that the Spirit of God in wisdom and revelation will enlighten our hearts in increasing measure towards as we grow in intimacy with Jesus, right? I know that's kind of a long thought. He's got a little bit of run-on sentence here. But the idea is he wants to remind us that what we as followers of Jesus have to celebrate are a couple of key things. What we have to celebrate is the hope to which he has called us, his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his power which is toward us, it says. Now, we're gonna walk through and kind of unpack those things, but right as we begin, I just want you to stop for a second and think about your understanding, what it is you're celebrating today. We just heard several people talk about what it is we're celebrating. But for those of us who were saints in the Lord Jesus Christ, who were believers in his death and resurrection, for those of us who've been called by him, there are a couple of things that we want to be remembering and that we want the Spirit of God to be increasingly expanding in us. So even if you're a person who's been walking with Jesus for a long time, I would invite you to recognize that in this text what Paul is saying is it doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, there is room for the eyes of your heart to be increasingly enlightened to these truths. Does that make sense? There's room for growth in all of us. The first thing he points us toward is the hope to which he has called us. He says, we're praying you'll have this, uh, the eyes of your hope that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. First thing I'd want you to notice here is his calling. We talked about it a little bit last week. 
But I want you to know that as followers of Jesus, the hope we have is not based on our own effort. It's not based on what we've learned. It's not based on where we've been. It's based upon the calling of God. It's his initiative. It's his work on our behalf. He says the hope to which he's called. So what, is that, what does that hope look like? Well, it's important to note that the hope that it's talking about here, and when we talk about Christian hope, we're not talking about the kind of hope you might have that you'll find toilet paper at Stater Brothers, for instance, right? There are sometimes when we talk about hope in America today, we're talking about things that are more like wishes, like I hope that they come up with a vaccine for COVID-19, or I hope that they make a sequel to my favorite movie, or I hope that my wife finally orders the cookies that I've been wanting her to order, you know, to have delivered, or what, like, I have these hopes, but I don't necessarily know when or if those things will happen, right? Sometimes when we think about hopes, we're thinking of them more like, like maybe it will and maybe it won't. I hope I don't fall off the stage, right? That, that's not what this is talking about. The hope to which he has called us is not a hope of uncertainty or a hope that's like a wish. In fact, in the Bible, when we see this idea of hope, what we're talking about realistically is an assurance of a current reality that has not yet been revealed to us. Does that make sense? A confidence around here at Fullerton Free, we might call that confident expectation. An assurance of a present reality that has not yet been revealed. So just to give you an illustration, kids, if you're listening, uh, some of you, I would guess, are wearing braces, right? You got braces on. You probably didn't want to have braces on, but your parents said, no, you're going to have braces, right? So you got these braces, and you are looking forward to the day when those braces come off and when your teeth are straight or whatever, aligned or what, I don't know, maybe, maybe they will, maybe, I don't want to mess you up, I don't want to mess up your hope. But the reality is there is a day fixed in time and space when those braces are coming off. I guarantee you no matter who you are that you are looking forward to Christmas, that you're looking forward to your birthday, that you're looking forward uh, to summer vacation. Maybe some of you now are looking forward to going back to school or going back to work. And those things are assured. They will absolutely happen. The braces will be coming off. It's not that you're hoping maybe they come off or maybe you have them on the rest of your life. Christian hope, the hope we have in the calling of Christ is not a will it, won't it happen kind of a thing. It's an absolute confidence or assurance in present spiritual reality that has not yet been revealed to us, right? The braces will come off. Summer will eventually come. Graduation will eventually occur, right? Christmas is gonna roll around again. For us, as Americans, when we hear the word hope in a text like this, we need to think of it more as a looking forward to an absolute certainty, a looking forward to an absolute certainty. He reminds us here, I'm praying for you that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to the hope you have in his calling. So what does this hope look like for me, what is the hope that I'm celebrating this morning on Easter? Well, I'm gonna give you a, a couple of things in rapid succession. In Galatians chapter five, verse 13, it talks about one of the hopes in his calling. 5.13 says of Galatians, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For freedom, this is verse one, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. One of the, the hopes we have in the calling of Christ is that he frees us, that we've been set free from sin and death. Not only freedom, look at what it says in Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul says, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What else has he called us to? What else do we have hope in? Peace and unity, mutual affection. That is the hope that he's called us to. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, look at what he calls us to there. It says in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We have hope, a confident expectation in a present reality that hasn't been fully revealed in fellowship with Jesus. That's something he's called us to. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He's called us to holiness, which just means to be set apart for his unique and special purposes. That's one of the hopes of our calling. Freedom, peace, and love, and unity, fellowship with God. Right? A call to holiness. Not only that, 1 Peter 5.10 says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Paul says, I'm praying that the spirit of God will enlighten your heart in wisdom and revelation so that you will be able to know the hope to which you've been called, a hope in freedom, which is an absolute certainty, a hope in unity and love and peace, a hope in eventual holiness, that we are being transformed into the likeness of his son, a hope of fellowship with God, which we have and will continue to have, a hope in the glorious inheritance, which is the next thing he's gonna say. For us who are followers of Jesus, we have this great hope. But it's also important to note there are some of you listening today who've never put your faith in Jesus. Ephesians 2 talks about where we were before we were called to follow Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. You see, the reality is that if it weren't for the call of Christ, if it weren't for the work of Christ, which we're celebrating today, Ephesians 2 says, we used to have no hope. We used to be alienated from God. We were separated from his covenants. We didn't know anything about it. See, the Bible teaches that all of us are sinners, and that might be like a no-brainer for you. If you're like me, you look at your own life, you look at yourself in the mirror, you look at the life you've lived, and you, you see evidence of all kinds of brokenness. I'm a flawed guy, and so are you, we are all in the heart of us falling short of the purpose for which God created us. God built us to know him and to love him, to have a relationship with him, and yet he gave us the option to reject him. And from the very beginning of human history, mankind has chosen to serve himself. The Bible calls that sin. When we fail to do the thing we were built to do, when we live a life of selfishness, the Bible calls that sin. Romans 3 says that all of us have sinned. Well, what is that sin? It's exactly what I just read to you in Ephesians 2. It's alienation from God because God is holy and perfect. Our sin separates us from him. Psalms 5 says the wicked can't dwell in God's presence. We're not only separated from God in this life because of our sin, but we're eternal beings. Someday, each and every one of us are gonna die. Each and every one of us are gonna get old or we're gonna get sick or we're gonna have an accident happen or whatever, and as a result, someday our physical bodies are gonna quit. And if we're alienated from God, if we're strangers to the covenant of God, when our physical body dies, we go into eternity fixed in that position, separated from God forever and ever in a place called hell. That's where I was, you guys, right? I was alienated from God because of my sin, separated from his truth, uh, at, at juxtaposition with his purpose for me. And yet Jesus rescued me from that. I have hope. Not a wish, not a man I really hope I don't fall off the stage, but I have a certainty of freedom, of unity and peace and love, of holiness. I'm being transformed 
He goes on to say, I'm praying that the Spirit of God will enlighten the eyes of your heart, not only about the, the hope of his call, but look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, the riches of his glorious inheritance can be interpreted a couple of different ways. There are some people who will say, well, that's just all the things we receive, all, all that freedom and that unity and that peace. The Bible talks in... Um, the Bible talks in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. You and I will be transformed. There are some who would look at Ephesians chapter 1 and say the, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints is that transformation. It's that relationship with God. It's that eventually those of us who put our faith in him won't be separated from, from him forever, but we will be united with him forever. In the same way that those who put their faith in Christ are united with Jesus today, we will go into eternity united with him forever and ever in a place called heaven. Some people would say the riches of his glorious inheritance is that life in heaven, that eternal life in the presence of God that believers have. Some people would say the riches of that glorious inheritance is the love and the affection that we feel, the things that we get, the answers to our prayers and whatever. Now all of those things are true. Believers do have this glorious inheritance and actually earlier in Ephesians chapter one, he talked about the fact that we have an inheritance. Eternal life in heaven, a relationship with God, forgiveness of our sins, transformation of ourselves. But I will tell you that here what Paul's praying for, in my opinion, is not these riches that we receive. Look at the way he writes this. He doesn't talk about our inheritance. He says, I'm praying that your eyes, the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, back to verse 18 again, the eyes of your heart will be enlightened what? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? It's not talking about our inheritance here, even though we have that. It's talking about his inheritance. Well, what is his inheritance? What is the inheritance, the glorious inheritance of God? Well, he tells us, he says, the glorious inheritance of God, what? In the saints. What is the glorious inheritance of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You see, the second thing he wants the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened to is not what we get out of a relationship with God, but the fact that in rescuing us and redeeming us, he has made us his treasure. I love a passage like the one we find in Psalm chapter 33, verse 12. Psalm 33, verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. That word heritage in Psalms could be translated inheritance. We are chosen by God. We are his treasure. We are precious to him. Now listen, I, I don't know who all's watching this today. I don't know where you come from or what your background is like, but I would guess that there are some of you who are watching this live stream today, or maybe you're listening to it down the road or whatever, and when you think about your own life, you don't think about yourself as precious. You don't think of yourself as God's treasure. You don't think of yourself as his inheritance, the glorious riches of his inheritance. But for those of us who are in Christ, who have this knowledge of Jesus, that's exactly who we are. Your life right now might be defined by things people have said to you. They might be defined by ugly words that people have said or maybe what you feel when you compare yourself to what you see in movies or on magazines. Your life might be defined by conflict. It might be defined by sin and brokenness. When you think of yourself, you may only see someone who's flawed and ruined in every way, who destroys relationships, who's lost everything valuable. You may be listening to all of these things and that might be the way you, you are defined, but listen, God 
wants to make you his inheritance. And if you're a follower of Christ, you are the riches of his glorious inheritance. You don't get to define yourself. God gets to define you. A few years ago, uh, actually several years ago, I took my family on a trip to Legoland, and uh, when we got there, I told all the kids, I said, hey, you know, each and every one of you can pick a, a souvenir. You know, I'll buy a, you know, what, some little thing, a T-shirt or a trinket or whatever. And all the kids kind of picked out little things and whatever. But Hank, my son Hank, he says, uh, he says, Dad, there's only one thing I want. I want, a, uh, I want a finger necklace, right? A finger necklace. And I was like, all right, man, let's look for that and see what we can find. So we look in the little shop. I can't find finger necklaces. To be honest with you, I don't know. You're probably wondering, what is that? I, don't, I didn't know. I didn't know what it was. But that's kind of Hank for you, right? So we're looking all over. We spend the whole day in Legoland. We go to every shop, every little stand, every stall. I even ask a guy in one of the stores. I'm like, hey, do you guys have, uh, you guys have, you guys have finger necklaces? that a thing? And he's like, what is that? I'm like, I don't know, my kid wants that, I don't know, I have no idea what that is, right? We're looking all day, we can't find it. By the end of the day, we've been at Legoland all day, still no finger necklace, and I, I finally looked at Hank and I said, man, just pick like a Lego set, or pick a hat, or pick a little foam sword or something, but man, we're not gonna, we're not gonna find this thing. He's like, dad, please, let's just try, it's the only thing I want, you know, I'm like, all right. So we go into the very last store, like the big store on your way out of Legoland, and we're looking around, and all of a sudden I hear Hank's voice from across the room. And he goes, Dad, Dad, I found it. And I'm like, what? So I go over to where he's at. And he's standing in front of this one wall. And as I walk up, he goes like this. He goes, finger necklaces, you know, and points at the wall. And I, I looked at him uh, and with the dramatic flourish. I looked at him and I looked at the wall and I saw what was on the wall. It was this huge display. And I said, uh, you mean, you mean keychains? And this whole wall had keychains all over it, right? It was just covered with keychains. And uh, my son Hank, then he reaches out and he grabs one of those keychains off the wall and he puts it on his finger and he goes, finger necklace, right? Like he'd found Excalibur, right? Now I looked at my son, I looked at my son at that point and I was like, dude, that thing has a name, right? That thing is called a keychain, right? It was made by somebody and called a keychain. It's only called a keychain. You don't get to just call it something else. The one who made it is the one who gets to name it. The one who made it is the one who gets to define it. Can I tell you that one of the things we are celebrating this morning is that by the the hope of his call, you and I can be God's glorious inheritance. We aren't defined by our mistakes. We're not defined by our failures. We're not defined by our brokenness and our sin. We are his precious heritage. He says, I'm praying that the spirit of God will increase your wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ, both towards the hope that he's called you to, freedom and unity and love and forgiveness, that you will no longer be strangers and alienated, right? But I also want you to remember that you are the riches of the glorious inheritance of God in his saints. The third thing he wants to remind us of in this passage, back to Ephesians chapter one, look at verse 18 again. He says, I'm praying that you'll have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that's us, verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of his power. Think about all these adjectives, right? It's like he goes on and on. I want you to understand the power of God toward you, or the power of God on your behalf. And he gives us three examples. He says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, and he gives us three examples, according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He says, I want your hearts to be enlightened to the power of God on your behalf, as is demonstrated firstly in the resurrection of Jesus. You see, I talked a second ago about the fact that mankind is separated and alienated from God because of our sin, that we are broken and set to be separated from him forever. And yet Jesus loved us so much, he designed us to be his glorious inheritance. And so Christ comes to the earth as a man, fully God, absolutely eternal being, right? Jesus comes to the earth and he puts on flesh and he does so with a purpose. He comes to the earth and he puts on flesh with the sole purpose of glorifying God by rescuing us from sin and death, by reconciling us to God who we were alienated from. Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. He never fails to glorify God in thought or word or deed or attitude. He shows us what a human being can be. And he takes the sin of the world upon himself. It says in Isaiah, the iniquity of us all has been placed on him. What that means is all of our brokenness, all of our wrongdoing, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our sin goes on Jesus. He was a substitute, a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for us. Jesus died on the cross not because he was tricked, not because he was bamboozled. He wasn't, you know, conned onto the cross. Jesus went to the cross, my friends. He went there to pay the penalty for Darren's sin. He went there because of his great love for me and his desire to glorify God to rescue me. He died on the cross and shed his blood to pay the penalty for my sin and he was buried dead. We, we celebrated that on Friday night in our Good Friday service. It was, it was a heavy goodness, right? There's a heavy goodness to thinking about the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. He was buried at the end of our service, right? We talked about his burial. And Jeff said on Friday night at the Good Friday service, that's not the end of the story. His death on our behalf is not the end of the story. You see, he wasn't just merciful to us in paying the penalty for our sin, but he is gracious to us, undeserved, unearned kindness. You see, on Easter Sunday, some of Jesus' friends went to the tomb to prepare his body in the Hebrew tradition for final rest. And when they got there, you probably know this story, the stone was rolled away. Jesus wasn't there. He had risen from the dead. He walked out of that tomb by the great power of God, right? The immeasurable power of God towards the saints, towards those who believe, is demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ. He walks out of the tomb proving that he has power over sin and death. He's paid the penalty for our sins. And the Bible says he extends to us by his grace that very same resurrection, that you and I can be made spiritually alive by putting our faith in Christ. We're made new. And then we go into eternity as the, the riches of his glorious inheritance, receiving also our glorious inheritance, which is life with him, freedom and peace and unity and life in heaven. He says here, I want the spirit of God to enlighten your hearts about the power of God demonstrated firstly by the resurrection of Christ. Not only that, back to verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Not only was God's power demonstrated through the resurrection of Christ, it's, it's demonstrated in the exaltation of Christ. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. What's that? That's spiritual reality. There's a finality to this. Jesus is seated there because his work is finished. And he's seated there not to rest, not because he needs to take a breath, but he's seated there to rule. And he's gonna show that to us next. Jesus seated, not only raised from the dead, God's power raised him from the dead, but God's power demonstrated in his exaltation that Jesus ascended and is right now at the right hand of the Father in spiritual reality, reigning, seated and ruling 
We see his power demonstrated in his resurrection. We see his power demonstrated in his ascension or his exaltation. And we see it demonstrated in his authority. Back to verse 20. It says, he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and God's power toward us who believe is demonstrated in his ultimate authority, not just authority over kings and presidents and governors and princes, but, but authority over every rule, every authority, both in temporal worlds and in spiritual realities. He has power over the demons. He has power over Satan. He has d- power over disease. He has power over the creation. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and has ultimate rule and authority over all things. He is the ruler of the universe. Paul says, I want you to celebrate, remember and celebrate the power of God toward you. That same Jesus who rose from the dead, who was exalted at the right hand of the Father and who is reigning today over all things. Look at what it says in verse 23. That same Jesus, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. That King Jesus who is reigning supreme authority over spiritual and temporal forces in every realm, both in this age and the next, all things are under his feet, that same supreme Jesus has been given to us, the church, as our boss, as our head, as our father, as our daddy. Jesus is our leader, the head of his body. He has all authority. What is it that Paul's trying to stir in us? He's trying to remember, help us to remember the hope of our call. Not, not a hope that is a wish, but a hope that is a certainty of things that have yet to be revealed. He's trying to remind us that we are defined by God. We are the riches of his glorious inheritance. And he's trying to remind us through the power of the Holy Spirit of the power of God that is towards us. This power that raised Jesus from the dead, that exalted him to a place at the right hand of the Father, that gives him the authority to reign over all things. That same Jesus is the leader of Fullerton Free Church and the leader of the church universal around the world. He is our leader. Why does he tell us that? Because that power, it says in this text, is toward us. That power is for us. I remember when I was in sixth grade, I was kind of a a scrawny kid. I was chubby, but short. And uh, one of my closest friends was a guy named Merrill. Merrill was uh, part of the Navajo Native American tribe. And even in sixth grade, I think we were like 12 years old, Merrill was like six foot four, right? He He was giant. In fact, when I think of him now, I can't picture his face. All I picture is his head blocking out the sun and like a, like a, you know, the, the ring of like, the, like an eclipse. I picture Merrill eclipsing the sun. And I will tell you that in sixth grade, I didn't care what sport we played, right? I didn't care if we played basketball or football at recess. I didn't care if we played tag. I didn't care if we played whatever, frisbee. I just wanted to be on Merrill's team, right? I never argued with my friends about what game we should play during recess. The only thing I fought for is let me be on Merrill's team. Why? Because Merrill had power. Jesus is the leader of our team. We are on that Jesus' team, resurrected, ascended, exalted, and ruling. He says, he's been given as the head to the church over all things. And verse 23, this church, he says, is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's kind of a weird sentence, but I want to explain it to you. He says, Jesus, the ruler of all things, has been given as a head to the church, his body, 
And then talking about the church, he says what? That we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. We know Jesus is the one who fills all in all. But he says that we are his fullness. What does that mean? The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, the idea is that we are a full, a full revelation. We become this beautiful and full revelation of who Christ is because we are his body in the present age. We are the ones who put Jesus on display in our grace and in our peace, in our freedom, in our love, in our unity, in our remembrance of the, the hope of his call, in our remembrance that we are the riches of his glorious inheritance, in our confidence in his power, that he's the leader of our team. We have the opportunity to put something of the fullness of Christ on display. His church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. It becomes us revealing him. We are a, a, an expression, a revelation of Christ who fills everything. These are a lot of things to celebrate this morning. I've talked about a lot and I've moved fast. But when we talk about why do we celebrate Easter, it's not like me at Red Lobster going, I don't really know why we walked, we just walked in here. No, no, no. When we sing these songs and when we celebrate Christ, we're celebrating the hope of our call. We're celebrating that he has made us the riches of his glorious inheritance and that he has given us an inheritance of our own. We are celebrating his power, which was put on display in his death and resurrection, in his exaltation, we are celebrating the fact that he is the ruler today of all things and he's the captain of our team, the head of our church. And as the head of our church, we, in following him, have the opportunity to put him on display in our community, in a time of sorrow, in a time of grief. We have the opportunity to reveal the fullness of Christ in some ways, who fills all in all. That might sound exciting to you. It sounds exciting to me. It's worth celebrating, right? If you're at home, maybe, maybe there's an amen there. But I also wanna point out one other thing. I said at the beginning that this prayer was for those who in the wisdom of the Spirit and the revelation of the Spirit know Christ in an intimate and, and, and relational way. It's not just knowing things about him. I've told you a lot of things about Jesus today. But those things aren't true for you unless you know him. Those things aren't true for you unless you know him. In fact, we see in, in verse 19, it talks about those who believe. We see that it talks about those who were called. We see that he's praying here for the saints. Who's he talking about? He's talking about those who know him in an int intimate and personal way. I think there may be some of you, both those of you who are tuning into the service this morning just because it's Easter, but maybe some of those of you come and sit in these seats when, when we're gathering normally who know a lot of things about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. It's one thing for me to study what Israel's like and to study the history of Israel. It's another thing to go and walk around in Israel, right? To really know it. Jesus has to be known by us. It says that this spirit of wisdom and revelation only comes and is only worth celebrating for those who are in the knowledge of him. I wonder this morning, have you ever put your faith in Christ? If you haven't put your faith in Christ, then you're still alienated from God, separated from his covenant, strangers because of sin. But there is no reason for you to remain in that position a moment longer. You see, because we're celebrating today the call of God to hope. We're celebrating the fact that he has chosen you to be his inheritance. We're celebrating his power that is toward you and for you. That same resurrection power that caused Jesus to walk out of the tomb is available to you this morning if you'll put your faith in Christ. John 3.16 says God loves the world so much that he gave the only son he had that anybody who believes in him won't perish but instead would have eternal life. My question for you this morning, listener or watcher, is can you celebrate these things? Can you celebrate his power toward you? 
Can you celebrate being his inheritance? If not, I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes right where you're at. I invite you in the quietness of this moment to cry out to God in your heart to say to God, will you rescue me? Will you give me your hope? Will you make me your glorious inheritance? Will you bring your power to bear? Rescue me from sin and death. Make me your daughter or your son. I invite you right where you're at to turn away from your sin, to turn away from your brokenness and allow your life to be defined by the saving power of Jesus. Will you cry out to him right where you sit? God, I pray that you would move in the hearts of those who are watching at home. And if there are any here who do not know you, maybe they know you in an intellectual way, but they don't know you in an intimate, relational way. They've never put their faith in you. They've never trusted in you and your grace to rescue them from sin and death. I pray, God, that you draw them to yourself, that you would save them from sin and death right in this moment on account of their trust in you, their faith in you, and your beautiful grace so that as we sing these closing songs this morning, they themselves can stand to their feet and celebrate your hope and your inheritance and your power, which is immeasurable. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.